Well, good morning, Serge. How you doing? Great. It's great to be with you. I never thought I'd be introduced as a church planner before. Church planning was like the X Games of Christian ministry for me, and I was risk averse. So uh, this is a new world for me. I've been a pastor up in New Jersey for about 10 years. Um, and so it was, when I say New Jersey, it's South Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. And um, we got introduced to church planning through a network of churches called Move Northeast, which is a group of churches in the Baltimore, Washington area. And we're introduced to the need for more churches in this area. And it was really the need for more churches that drew us to church planting. And uh, when I say drew us to church planting, I'm talking about my family. And so what will probably surprise you because I look like I'm 16 years old is that I actually have five children. So I want to introduce you to my family. Uh, this is what we call ourselves the Wolf Pack. So my last name is the Wolf. And so this is the Wolf Pack. Two of us, two of my kids are here this morning. The rest are homesick. Uh, so they weren't able to be with us this morning. But my oldest daughter is Lillian, 14, down to Toby, who's four. So we've got five kids, and my wife and I have been married for 15 years, and when I say we uh, decided to plant a church, uh, this was not just um, my show. Uh, this is a decision that we made as a family that we're excited about to start a new church, and where we're starting a new church is in Owings Mills, Maryland. If you don't know Owings Mills, think about where Baltimore is, and think about just on the northwest side of Baltimore. It's a suburban community outside of the Baltimore area, and so we just moved there. So when Dwayne says that I'm a church planner starting a church, I ha we haven't started yet. We moved into the area just a month ago, so we're very new. So if you're thinking like, hey, tell us more about your church, well, I just, that's our church right there, and uh, and so it's seven of us right now. We moved into Owings Mills. We're in the phase of recruiting a launch team and meeting people in the community. So you can be praying for us as we start uh, just connections into the community. And we'll be launching the church in October of this fall. So October 1st will be our first Sunday public meeting. And this venue makes any church planter envious. So this is an awesome place to be able to do church in and to meet together. Uh, so pray for us too as we find a venue in that area to be able to meet in. But that's kind of like where we're at in the process of church planting. One quick question for you is, uh, as the Wolf Pack, we like to move over this way a little bit. Oh, now you can see me. All right. Great. I've been in the dark for, <laughs> that's great. Sorry, I've been in the dark for a little bit. So, well, we love to run together. Does anybody here like to be outside or run? Did you enjoy this past week, the weather? Uh, it became February again today, uh, so the cold weather coming back in. But we also love to go to the beach. Does anybody like to go to the beach in the summertime? All right, awesome. Does anybody like to go to the Outer Banks? Anybody ever been to the Outer Banks before? Well, our family, um, we go to the Outer Banks almost once a year, every year for the last 10 years. And uh, a couple of years ago when we went to the Outer Banks, uh, it was our first time on the beach, and I was there with my family, and my parents came with us that year, and we, uh, it's a bit of an adventure. So we have five kids, and we have five kids and 13 years of beach toys accumulated. So it's quite a sight to see us get to the beach in the first place. So as you can imagine, once we get to the beach, we're tired just from being able to get to the beach with all these beach toys and kids that we're wrangling up together. Um, but as we got to the beach and sit down, my dad and I are watching this guy who's out on an ocean kayak. Has anybody been on an ocean kayak in the ocean before? 
And so it can be a lot of fun, it could also be dangerous. And this guy was struggling. Uh, so he had fallen out of his kayak. He was struggling to get back to it. So my dad and I are just kind of standing there. We're exhausted from getting to the beach. And um, he's drifting away from his kayak. And so I'm thinking, well, I've been a lifeguard for three years. I've been on a swim team. Let me just go out and swim out there and see if I can give him a hand. So I grab my boogie board and I swim out. And as I get into the water, the waves were much bigger than they looked from the beach. Sometimes, you know, waves don't look very big when you're standing on the beach, but as you get out further and further, those waves were pretty large. It was pretty rough, and so I started to understand this is why he was probably having a hard time on the ocean kayak that day. And by the time I made it out to his kayak, I couldn't see him anymore. Um, So his kayak is there, and I said, maybe I can just grab the kayak and pull it in. Uh, Well, I couldn't grab the kayak, and I realized pretty quickly why he was struggling. Just because the waves and the surf was pretty rough, um, and the kayak was more like a weapon, if you weren't in it, um, than uh, something to enjoy uh, having a fun time on. And so I just said, forget this. Let me just go see if he needs a hand. I knew he had a life jacket on, because we saw him in a life jacket, so I wasn't too worried that he was like out there drowning. Um, And I couldn't find him after a couple of minutes, so I said, forget this. Let me just go in and um, see... uh, see if we can get some help. And so I swim in a couple, couple minutes and I look to the beach and I see that I'm not getting any closer to the beach. So you can probably guess what I'm caught in, right? You want to guess? A riptide, a rip current, a riptide. So what are you supposed to do when you're caught in a riptide? You then swim horizontal to the beach. And that's how you're supposed to get out. So you're just going against um, the rip current if you're trying to swim into the beach. And so I start swimming sideways. And even swimming sideways, I was not able to get out of this rip current. And as I mentioned, the surf was pretty rough, uh, and uh, I wasn't able to make any progress anywhere. I was starting to get nervous. And you're probably wondering, well, where's the lifeguard? You know, you're at the beach. Isn't there a lifeguard there? Well, where are we going? The Outer Banks, there's no lifeguards. In fact, this was probably like our eighth or ninth year going to the Outer Banks, and I've never seen a lifeguard in all of our trips to the Outer Banks in the particular place that we go. So I'm starting to imagine... As I'm there, not able to get anywhere, and I know there's another guy out there who uh, needs help as well, what's going to happen to us? And, you know, I've never seen a lifeguard before. Is the Coast Guard going to come with a helicopter and drop, you know, drop the cage down where we get brought up? I'm starting to get embarrassed thinking about, you know, a helicopter coming to save me. Um, But all of a sudden on the beach, I do see people gathering on the beach looking out. Um, and acknowledging there's something that's not right. Unbeknownst to me, somebody did call a lifeguard. And uh, so there's a lifeguard station. You just, they just have to drive down the beach in their pickup truck. And so sure enough, we see this yellow pickup truck drive down, and within minutes, David Hasselhoff is pulling up to me um, on my boogie board and asking me, say, hey, how, are you okay? I said, I'm okay, but I'm stuck. He said, okay, well, I'm going to go get the other guys. And he said, guys, plural. And that got my attention. Like, there's other guys out there? What's going on? Is Jaws out there? Because I didn't see other guys. Uh, but he goes off to other guys. And then before I know it, there is a, a couple other lifeguards that pull up with a jet ski. And I got to hop onto a jet ski and get pulled around the ocean and brought in. And my kids were so jealous of me um, being on a jet ski. So now they think if they get caught in a riptide, they'll get a free jet ski ride. So we've tried to teach them that that's not true. It doesn't always happen that way. Um, But that was a time and a moment in my life where I was helpless. I needed to be rescued. Um, I don't know if you've ever needed rescue in your life, but it's a common theme in the story of life. It's a common theme not only in the story of life, but also in the story of the Bible. As we study following God together, 
um, we realize that there's this huge rescue uh, plot uh, throughout the Bible and throughout the story that we're a part of that story as well. And we're going to look at that a little bit through the lens of the movie today, which is The Finest Hour. Has anybody here ever heard of The Finest Hour before? Has anybody seen the movie The Finest Hour? Okay, a handful of people have seen The Finest Hour. Well, let me go ahead and introduce you to The Finest Hour through playing the trailer. Um, And so this is a movie that's about rescue. So that's kind of the theme that we're talking about today. So let's watch the trailer together. So that's The Finest Hour. So it's not going to be winning any Oscars tonight. I was thinking about actually going to Hacksaw Ridge. So Hacksaw Ridge is a very similar theme of rescue. Um, but this came out a year ago. If you haven't seen it yet, it'll be an awesome movie to watch. I'm a sucker for like true story movies. I love watching movies that are based on true stories. And this is a movie that's based on a true story. And here's the story. Uh, so if you didn't catch it in that clip, in February 18th of 1952, there was a massive nor'easter that struck New England. And in that process of, stri- of the storm uh, brewing in the sea, uh, there were ships that were out, um, you know, seeking to deliver, you know, different, this was a oil tanker, whatever ships deliver there. And this oil tanker was called an, the SS Pendleton. We have a picture of the SS Pendleton for you. It's a T2 oil tanker that was on its way to Boston. So it's this massive ship. And what happened is because the storm was so strong, the ship literally ripped in half. And so this ship rips in half, and half of it sinks right away. The other half is floating, sinking much more slowly. And so this half has 33 men on board. And the whole story is about this man, Bernie Weber. So we have a picture of Bernie Weber. He gets the phone call um, at the U.S. Coast Guard Station in Chatham, Massachusetts. Um, He gets the call to go out and to rescue these 33 men. So Bernie Weber is played by Captain Kirk. Um, So Chris Pine, if you know Chris Pine or Captain Kirk uh, in the movie The Finest Hour. And here's the thing that's fascinating about this rescue mission is this boat that goes out in this storm is a 35-foot wooden lifeboat. So we have a little picture of it here. So that's the boat that is supposed to go out into this massive storm where this ship is ripped in half because of the force of the waves. The waves are 60 to 70 feet waves that are out in the ocean. It's frigid temperatures, so it's in the middle of the winter, and there's hurricane force winds. But the most challenging part of this rescue is not just some of those stats. It's getting out into the ocean because what they need to do is they need to get out of the Cape Cod Bay. The Cape Cod Bay had a reputation of being called the Graveyard of the Atlantic Ocean. There had been over 3,000 recorded boat crashes just in that area of the Cape Cod Bay. And so they have to get out there, and it's extremely dangerous. And I want to show you a clip of how dangerous it was uh, for them in the movie. So we got a clip for you to see.
Anybody ready to sign up for the Coast Guard? Wow. Now you thought getting out just in that boogie board or that surfboard was hard. That is insane. That is an amazing rescue when you think about what these guys were up against as they went out to save 33 men on the SS Pendleton. Uh, you know, what we're talking about this morning, though, is not just a movie um, or a true story that was just 50 years ago, but we're talking about a rescue uh, in this life, a rescue that we all need, that we're all part of, uh, whether we've been rescued or we're in need of rescue. Uh, it's for those that are disconnected from God. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is seeing God's heart to rescue those that aren't connected to him, that are far away from him. Uh, One of the verses that comes to mind in illustrating God's heart to reach people is one of the most popular verses that's probably out there. You probably see it on billboards or on poster, uh, poster board signs at football games, Tim Tebow's face paint, maybe it's John 3.16. And so if you're familiar with John 3.16, it says, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the word there can be gave or sent. And so this is a popular verse and it's popular for a reason because it gets at the heart of God. His heart is to send Jesus so that anybody who's not connected to him uh, would be able to have a relationship with him for all of eternity. And so it reflects the heart of God in sending Jesus. And so the rescue mission that we're talking about in the Bible is this rescue mission of God sending Jesus Christ. And if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, he spends his life here um, seeking to teach people how to have fullness of life through him and be connected to God. And he spent a lot of his time with 12 men in particular. He didn't have a mega church. Um, he had 12 men that he invested his life in. Um, and he spent time with them teaching teaching him about the kingdom of God. As he did that, one of the things he then taught them was this in John 20, 21, one of his last words where he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm now sending you. So the heart of God is to send Jesus so that we can be connected to God. Um, But now Jesus says in the same way that God loves us and sent me to rescue you, now I'm sending you um, to be part of this rescue process, to be connecting people back to God. What a great mission in life. I can't think of a better mission to be a part of, to be part of somebody who is a sent one on behalf of Jesus Christ for people to be able to have a relationship with God and live fullness of life in knowing him. You know, there's no greater mission and anything closer to the heart of God than this mission. I saw a great picture of this uh, heart of God uh, through a story um, that a friend of mine who lives in State College, Pennsylvania. Have anybody been ever to State College before? So State College is where Penn State is at, and State College is a beautiful town. It's this great town. They have a huge arts festival once a year uh, where they have bands and local artists display art, food, and just a weekend uh, where there's thousands of people that come in for this festival. And my friend was at this festival. In the middle of the festival, there's a break in the music, and somebody comes up and says, hey, there's, there's a lost child, and it's a little girl with blonde hair. So if you can find this girl, if you see her, can you please go ahead and um, walk with her back to this flagpole where her mother is. And so they kind of point to this flagpole and announce this lost girl announcement. And then the band kicks back in to some music and everybody kind of looks around real quick and they go back to just enjoying the arts festival together. My friend, her name is Sasha. Uh, She was really disturbed by this. She's like, there's a girl that's missing. Sasha is a mother of young children. And so she's relating to um, this mom who's probably frantic. And she goes to see this mom to find out some more details about the girl. Like, what does your daughter look like? How can we look for her? And so Sasha and her friend go to talk to this mom who is starting to lose it as she thinks about her little girl being missing. And 
when she thinks about her little girl, it wasn't like a 14, 15-year-old daughter. It was a five-year-old child that was missing amongst thousands of people. And so Sasha and her friends start looking through the crowd, and they're not finding. They got more details and description of the girl. And to make, make a longer story short, Sasha finds this little girl two blocks away from the festival. Um, so having to cross two streets uh, at State College, uh, walking down a street all by herself, a little five-year-old girl. And she runs after this girl, brings her back to her mom, and is able to reunite this little girl with her mom. But if you were to think about going up to that mom through that process, I don't think she would have been interested in just telling stories about her daughter. I don't think she would have been interested in trying to be distracted and listen to the music or look at some art with you. I think the only thing she was thinking about in that moment is where is my daughter and how can we find her? Who is willing to help me find my daughter? Any mom would have that instinct and urgency and be consumed with those thoughts. And I thought of that story because it's really a picture of how God feels about his lost children every day. Every day, God's heart for lost children is just like that mom's. And the sense of urgency to bring lost children back to himself. You know, when we think about the story of rescue, um, and we think about the story of God, they intersect together with the heart being motivated by love and the desire and the urgency, we need to go. So in this movie, The Finest Hour, Chris Pine, who, who plays um, the captain of the ship and the rescue mission, you know, he's, there's an urgency. We need to save these men now because their ship is sinking. And they're separated um, from land where they can have security and safety. In the same way, God desires for all of us and all of his children to have security and safety through Jesus Christ in a relationship with him. See, apart from God, people, we just don't have hope, we don't have forgiveness, we don't have grace. Do you believe that's okay for people in this life to not have any hope, for people in this life to not have any love, for people not to be connected to God? I don't think you think that's okay. Um, I think you think it's not okay. People need to be connected to God. They need to have love and hope. That's why you're here this morning. Um, so if our heart beats with God's heart for people that are far from him, how do we get on this page? And that's what we're talking about this morning is not just our hearts aligning with God's, but now how do we now become those sent ones? As Jesus sent his disciples out, how do we become sent ones? What does that look like for us? And the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest sent ones uh, in the Bible who started many churches, uh, he writes these words in a book called 2 Corinthians uh, where he's writing about what does it look like to be a sent one? And he starts by saying this. And if you have your Bibles, you can open up to this passage. We'll look at a couple verses here. But if not, we have it on the screen for you. And it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So we continue to see just the heart of this mission uh, in these verses that for those that embrace and trust in the love of Christ, we're now compelled to do something. The apostle Paul was compelled. You know, he had this experience in coming to know God through Jesus Christ. The risen Savior appeared to him on this journey and, and changed his life in such a miraculous way. It changed the way he lived for God. It compelled him to live differently. And the compulsion in the phrase here that comes, uh, surfaces, it says, I no longer live for myself. So the first thought 
in thinking about how do we become a sent one is to have this motto for our life. It's that I no longer live for myself. See, as you follow along in the story of Jesus, you see this displayed in all of his followers. So as Jesus goes and tells fishermen to drop their nets, they drop their nets and they follow him. They leave their business to follow this man. He goes to tax collector who's making money, stealing money from people. And Jesus goes to tax collectors and says, leave your tax booth and come follow me. And they do. They leave that. Men leave their homes and become homeless to follow Jesus. They follow the motto of, I no longer live for myself. And in the culture that we live in America, that's definitely countercultural to think that way. We live in a culture that says, look out for number one. Um, Don't be number two. Be number one. Look out for number one. In a world that seeks to promote self, Jesus is saying, lay down your life. See, in a world where we live and where the primary interest is self-preservation, Jesus teaches, practice self-sacrifice. See, in this movie, The Finest Hours, uh, Bernie Weber is a man that doesn't live for himself. He illustrates that. You know, when he gets the call to go out, all the fishermen from the local town are kind of in this station together. And they kind of look at him and say, are you going to do this? And he's like, of course I'm going to do this. And they're like, well, you know how dangerous it is out there. It's going to be, it's going to be hard to get out. And he listens to them uh, and he considers what they're saying. And then he goes ahead and he starts getting ready for the mission. Then they kind of get together again. And they said, Bernie, we don't think you understand how serious this is. This is, and they called it a suicide mission. If you go out there and if you try to do this, you're going to wreck the boat and you're going to kill yourself. Just drive around the bay, say you tried to get out, and then come back in. And this is what he says, and it's a phrase and a slogan in the Coast Guard. And you might have heard it if you picked up in the trailer. He says, in the Coast Guard, they say you got to go out, but they never say you got to come back in. You know, I love and respect everybody that serves in the military in our country because they have slogans like this that are all about laying down their lives for the sake of others. And the Coast Guard is so true as well. And... There's a motto for Christians that's very similar too. It's this motto that Paul's introducing to us. If we're going to be ones that are sent on this greatest rescue mission on behalf of God and Jesus Christ, we need to live with this type of motto as well, that we no longer live for ourselves. You see, in the same way that Bernie had to lay down his fears and concerns, you know, he could have thought about those waves. You saw how big those waves were. He knew what he was getting himself into. He could be very intimidated by those waves. He could have just played it safe and stayed in. Now, we could do the same things as Christians. Uh, for Christ followers, we can play it safe in a lot of different ways. We might be scared of you know, offending somebody or making a relationship awkward. Or maybe somebody will ask us a question that we just don't know the answer to. And there's different waves, maybe, that we relate to in the Christian walk and trying to introduce people to God that we just say, you know what? Maybe it's not worth it to have that conversation. Or maybe it's not worth it to invite that person. Or there's no way that person will respond. And I think if we follow the motto of the Apostle Paul where he says, we no longer live for ourselves, we'll start to consider overcoming those waves um, and going out and continuing um, on this rescue mission. See, I don't think there's any room for playing it safe 
in this rescue mission. There's a motto that I've heard of, and you might have heard this uh, slogan, I am second. There's like a whole campaign uh, called I am second with different people sharing their stories of how they came to know Jesus Christ. And I think this is a great motto too that reflects Paul's heart here saying, I am second. It's a great way to think about people as we go out of these doors, as we go back to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our communities, if we go out for a meal, we think I am second. Uh, We don't think that way a lot because oftentimes if you go out to a restaurant, you have a server that's serving you. And you think, well, in that situation, I'm first. Well, not if we live according to Christ's words, we're second. And we should ask that server how they're doing that day. We should ask, you know, maybe there's a way that we can pray for them. That's often something that we'll do as a family. If my wife and I are out, we'll just say, hey, is there, we're Christians. We're going to pray for a meal. Can we pray for you? And you know, sometimes it does. It's like, they're like weirded out by it. And they're like, uh, I don't know. And they don't know what to say. But a lot of times, people were really affected that you would think about them. And say, thanks for asking. I don't have any prayer requests, but you could just pray whatever. And sometimes they'll open up their life and they'll just start talking to us. And it's a great opportunity to say, you know what? We value you. See, the Apostle Paul, when he says, I no longer live for myself, he's valuing the worth of Jesus Christ, but also the worth of people. We reflect when we live this type of slogan with our lives, I am second, that people are worth value. Um, That God loves them and God wants them to come into a relationship with himself. And so this I am second theme is, should be a theme and a motto of our life. And I want to give you just a little two practical things to do and to think about. And the first is an I am second challenge. And that's this week. Is there some way that you can demonstrate that you're second to somebody else in your life? Maybe it's a coworker that you can take out for lunch. You can say, hey, I want to take you out for lunch this week. Um, I really enjoy hanging out with you and appreciate you. And so can I take you out for lunch? And it's a way that you should say, I'm second. Maybe it's a server or a cashier at a grocery store or somebody who's going to cut your hair this week if you go out and get a haircut. And the way you can demonstrate I am second is just by saying, tell me about your life. Um, what's something, what are things that make you happy? And maybe, they, maybe you find out their favorite food and you go back and you give them, you know, they say, oh, I love this certain donut from a certain donut shop. And you go get that donut and bring it to them. Just think of one practical thing this week uh, that you can do to demonstrate I am second, that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for other people. That's one of the, you know, the ethics or the ethos of somebody who's a sent one, who's going on mission for God to help people be connected to God. But there's another thing um, that we see, but I want to introduce it by showing one more clip from this movie. It's another scene in the movie that stood out to me um, that I really feel like we can glean from and benefit from as we think about this rescue mission. And what's happening, before I show you this clip, is there's a dialogue taking place. So it's after they get past um, all the waves, and they've been kind of driving around in the, in the water for some time, and they're tired. They lost their compass. So on that part of the process where you see all those waves battering them, they lost their compass. They don't have any lights, and so there's no lights. Uh, And so it's completely dark. And there's this sea that's just become like a monster come to life. And they're starting to doubt, should we continue to look around for this ship that we just can't find? We don't know how to find it. And so check out how Chris Pine or Bernie Weber interacts with his crew I love that clip because if you have seen this movie, you get to know Bernie and his character. He's this really soft-spoken man. He, he doesn't have much emotion that he expresses. And so this is like the climax 
of emotion. Like he just, like a light switch flips on. All of a sudden he's angry because people are questioning, all right, we got this far. That was great. That was amazing. Let's turn around. You know, let's not push it any further. And you see him kind of like just flip out on his crew there. He's like, no, we're not going to turn around. I got us out this far. Not under my watch will we give up. And what happens in that moment, what we learn in that moment is he personally owns this mission. He's just not like sent and he's just not doing his job. He's got skin in the game uh, and he owns this mission. He sees his identity wrapped up in how he needs to rescue um, these men that are stranded on that ship. And I love this moment um, because what he does is he's making uh, the the mission of the Coast Guard his own personal mission. That's what we need to do uh, in following Christ and being Christ followers. We need to make Christ's mission our own mission. We need to get our own skin in the game. And there's this phrase that the Apostle Paul shares in this next section of 2 Corinthians 5 where he says this, and he gives us one helpful phrase. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God was making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. See, the Apostle Paul says, hey, we're now, we're Christ's ambassadors. You know, through us, God's making his appeal to people to be reconciled, meaning they're, they're not connected to God. They're separated from God. And it's through us that they're going to be connected to him. And God's given us an assignment. And he's given us this label too there. It says ambassadors. And, uh, you know, notice Paul doesn't say, you know, he's given me this message and I'm going and I'm starting churches or he's given certain leaders in the church this message. He's talking about us. All of us are, are in this together. Um, there's no qualification except to say that I'm a Christ follower, then you can go help make other Christ followers. And he's making that simple, and he says this word ambassador. An ambassador is a word that is very much the same today as it was in that day, where an ambassador represents uh, their nation and its highest official and all the values of that nation. And so in thinking of being an ambassador of heaven, he thinks about heaven being our homeland. And this is, this is what we're sent uh, from. We're sent by God who lives in heaven to represent heavenly values on this earth. And there's a great definition that sums up what an ambassador is by a man named Charles Hodge where he says, an ambassador is at once a messenger and a representative. He doesn't speak in his own name and he doesn't act on his own authority. So what he communicates isn't his own opinion or demands, but simply what's been told or commissioned to him. So his message derives no part in its importance or trustworthiness from him. At the same time, he is more than a mere messenger. He actually represents his sovereign. So as ambassadors, we, this are not our opinions, our demands, what we think people need to do. We're representing somebody who's above us, who's higher than us. It's our sovereign God and our King, Jesus Christ. In this world, we live as ambassadors with this great message and this great news. Now, if you think about it, you're close to D.C., you're closer to D.C. than I am, um, so you're more familiar with the political scene and uh, around here, and you see a lot more, probably, uh, see a lot more and meet and run into uh, people that work in D.C. Many of you probably work in D.C. Now, let's say for a minute that the president uh, appoints you to be an ambassador. 
You would report to the Secretary of State, um, but he makes you an ambassador and sends you to another country, and we'll just make up France for today. Um, We'll need an ambassador to go to France today. No agenda with France, not saying anything about France, but I pick France because, you know, France has a lot to look at when you go over there. And so if you're the ambassador sent to France, where are you going to go first? You're going to go to Paris. And you're going to check out the Arc de Triomphe, the Louvre, the Eiffel Tower. You're going to eat some French food, and you're going to learn some culture. And so you spend your first two weeks just getting to know France. Of course, you're going to be the ambassador to France. You should take some time to learn about France. But as an ambassador uh, of the United States in France, you have a job to represent people to look out for the needs of people that are American citizens in there. You're supposed to be advancing and representing the, the needs of the United States in that country. And so the Secretary of State calls you up and asks how things are going. You said, well, I'm just getting to learn France. He said, well, that's great. Now, I'm glad you're learning about France, but you do have a job to do while you're over there as well. He says, all right. And you hang up the phone. You say, you know what? There's so much more to France to learn than just Paris. You know, there's beautiful beaches. There's the countryside. There's the French Alps. And you spend the next month taking in all the scenes from the rest of Paris, and then the Secretary of State calls you to say, how are things going? Are you looking out for the American citizens that are there? Are you connecting with other uh, diplomats or um, French uh, politicians? And you say, no, I haven't been able to schedule any of those meetings yet. I'm still just learning about France. And what the Secretary of State says to you is, you're not an ambassador, you're a sightseer. And I just wonder if in my life, if God would say to me sometimes, Tim, You're not being an ambassador, you're just being a sightseer. See, in this world, I think we can go through life as sightseers, just enjoying life, taking things in. Uh, There's a lot in this life to take in and enjoy. Uh, But there's also a reason that we're here. There's a greater purpose, and that purpose is wrapped up in our identity on this rescue mission as an ambassador. See, God's not called us to be spiritual sightseers in this world. As Christ's followers, he's called us to represent him, to be spiritual ambassadors, to share the love of Christ, the greatest message of all, with other people. The way we live our lives, um, the way we serve people, love them, uh, the way we invite them in to a relationship with God, whether it's through our actions or through our words, we're called to be ambassadors. We're called to be sent ones. And Jesus said to his disciples, remember, as the as Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. And it wasn't just 12 disciples, but anybody else who would come after those disciples and follow after Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, you now no longer live for yourself. You lay down the agendas that you have wrapped up in your own life and live for the greatest agenda. Um, living for uh, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And also identifying yourself as an ambassador of him. And being a sent one. And so I thought of, well, what does it look like? What does this practically look like for us to be an ambassador? And I have a sense strategy to show you. And I think that if we just look at this sense strategy together, it can give us some feet to, okay, I can do this. I can pray for people. So today, no matter where you're at in your journey in following Jesus Christ, I know that all of us here can pray for people. We can start to pray that people would be connected to God, would enjoy and experience the love of God through Jesus Christ. It's a real simple, easy prayer, and God wants to do that. God wants to hear those prayers from us. We can pray for those that are closest to us and those that we don't even know yet. So as I'm planning a church in this Owings Mills area. We just moved in a month ago. Every person that I'm meeting, I'm just writing their name down in a little journal. And as I, as I meet people, I just write their name down and I'll, I'll just go through that once or twice a week and I'll just look through names and I'll just pray for those people. I might, never, I might never see them again, but I know that God's called me to pray for them as a sent one. So just start praying for people. The next thing then is to get out. 
Now maybe you say, I don't know many people who aren't connected to God. Or maybe you do know a lot of people that are connected to God and, and you're out a lot already. But some of us, maybe we need to get out a little bit more. We need to get into the community in different ways and get into different environments where we can rub shoulders with people that aren't connected to God yet. And just be able to rub shoulders and be around people when the weather's nice like it has been this past week. You know, are we outside going for a walk? Saying hello to people um, as we're out for a walk. And not just keeping to ourselves. I think in this Northeast culture, um, it's very easy just to kind of keep to ourselves. Um, but let's adopt some of the mentality of anybody from the South, you know, and just uh, the Southern hospitality and saying hello and being friendly um, to others and befriending others. The next one would be uh, befriend um, and then go further than that greeting and that hello, but to share a meal with somebody, to get to know somebody. Um, and just, you know, befriending them also implies that, you know, we're on the same level together. Uh, I'm not holier than you because I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm in the same boat together with anybody else in this world, and we all need Jesus together. Um, so just be friend with people um, and be a normal person. Be who you are around folks. And then next step would be invite. So inviting people to church, inviting them into uh, either a relationship with God or coming out to a church or a small group experience. There might be other experiences that you have here at Surge that are easy places to invite people into. I have a friend who planted a church in Philadelphia and he just called it the kitchen table night. And he told all of the members of his church, like, hey, there's one night a week is the kitchen table night. It means nobody from church is in your house, but somebody who's not part of any church, um, who's not connected to God, is at your kitchen table. And you invite them to your kitchen table and share life and community with them. And it's inviting them into the story of God through sharing your life with them. And then part of that process, maybe that dinner table conversation, if you're out for lunch or just talking with them, is to ask them. So that next step is ask. So what do I mean by ask? Ask them about their spiritual background. I find that many people are willing to talk about their spiritual background. It's not, um, it's not an offensive question. You're just in, taking an interest in people's lives and you're learning about them. And you're asking, hey, what's your spiritual background? Did you grow up with any type of spiritual upbringing? And just getting into a conversation, learning where people are coming from, learning how they view God, how they view this world, uh, what their worldview is. Um, and so you're learning. And if you've built a true friendship, they'll probably ask you, what's your spiritual background? It gives you then a context to go ahead and talk about where you're at in your journey with Christ, um, where you've come from and where you're at today. And that's that last step of share. And that's sharing your story. You see, this is the sent strategy. To pray, get out, befriend, invite, ask, share. You know, as you share your story of Christ, as you share the message of reconciliation that the Apostle Paul lays out. And I think that wherever you're at, as you think through people in your life, um, maybe you just need to take the first step today and start to pray for people. Maybe, you know, I'm praying for people regularly. I get out. I know a lot of people that aren't connected to God. I'm really friendly with them. So have you invited them into uh, the surge community here? Have you invited them to a context where they can meet other Christians? And so maybe it's just um, where you have a night where other friends are together from the church and you invite uh, friends who aren't from the church together. Um, have you been able to take that step yet or ask them their spiritual background? See, I think with for all of us, we're in different places on this spectrum with different people. And that's okay. But the question I want to ask is, what's the next step for you? In this sense strategy, all of us can take one more step with somebody in our life. Um, and so these are different steps that I think about. When I think personally about being a sent one, I think about 14 years ago uh, when my wife and I bought our first home. It was a townhouse in another suburb of Baltimore area. And we moved into this townhouse community and we really quickly learned that on the weekends, our townhouse little court turned into like a block party. 
And everybody was, they would just drink all week, weekend. They were friendly. Uh, so it wasn't like, a, it wasn't a bad scene. Um, they were very lively. There was this one dude, Bill. Have you ever seen those big, big gulp cups? Like the massive big gulp mugs that 7-Eleven puts out? He would just carry that around filled with beer all weekend and just nurse that thing um, all weekend long. And, um, and so our, our neighbors were incredibly friendly to us. They had some help in being friendly, um, but, but they were incredibly friendly. And we got to know our neighbors really easily because you'd just be outside on your front stoop and talk to them. Um, and we would pray for our neighbors. And in particular, we'd pray for Dave and Judy who live right next door to us. And we'd pray for Dave and Judy. We'd get to know them. It was so easy to get to know them. They were really friendly. And then we'd invite them out to church. And that's kind of like where it ended in that process. They were just not interested, you know, because on Sunday morning, there had been two nights of heavy drinking and a full day on Saturday of drinking. And so there was sleeping that was happening in our neighborhood on Sunday morning. Nobody wanted to come to church. Until one day, Dave had to go back to work on a Monday after a weekend of heavy drinking. And he had drunk so much that weekend that his body withdrew so significantly that he had cardiac arrest and his heart stopped beating. An ambulance had to come and they had to resuscitate him back to life to get his heart beating again. But he was in a coma. And so he was in a coma for about three weeks. And during that time in his coma, he had some type of near-death experience where he woke up and he turned to his wife, Judy, we need to go to that church that Tim and Maria have been inviting us to. And you know what? We didn't do anything miraculous or amazing. We just prayed, hung out. With Dave and Judy, invited them to church. We got rejected a handful of times in that process. But because of these circumstances, Judy knocks on our door and says, we need to come to church with you. And we're like shocked. We're like, what happened? We didn't know what had happened because it was the wintertime. And you know, in wintertime, everybody stays inside a little bit more um, and you don't interact with your neighbors as much. And so she said, she starts to tell us the whole story of what happened with Dave because we hadn't seen them for weeks. And she said, well, we're coming to church as soon as he gets out of the hospital. They got out of the hospital. They came to church. And to make a long story short, they got plugged into the life of that church. They fell in love with Jesus Christ. They got baptized. They started serving um, and helping out in that church and became followers of Christ through just simple steps of us seeing ourselves as sent ones. We weren't heroes. We didn't do anything amazing. Um, in fact, I think if you were to... to examine what we did during that time and say they didn't really do much of anything. Just praying, being friends to them, inviting them. See, God does the work in people's hearts and he did the work in Dave and Judy's hearts. Six years ago, Dave passed away. He was way too young to die, but because of the abuse of alcohol in his body over a long course of time, um, there was effects of that in his life and he passed away. And I remember going to his funeral and you think about funerals and you think about, you know, in that moment, there's people that are grieving the loss for Dave, his wife was grieving his loss. His children were grieving his loss. They were grown up, thankfully. Um, but they were still grieving their father's loss. There was a church that was grieving the loss of one of their friends and members of the church. But there wasn't a loss that was happening in that time. There was a child of God that was now connected in home with God. All because of a sense strategy. All because of people living in community together saying, we're ambassadors of Christ reaching out. You see, it was easy. Once we introduced Dave and Judy to the church, we, we weren't in their small group anymore. We weren't connected to them that much. They started to meet all their people that were part of the process of them becoming followers of Jesus Christ as well. And so it's not just us individually living as sent ones, but us as a community living as sent ones where we can see people who are far off from God be connected to him. This is the greatest rescue mission possible in this world. 
And we could all be part of that um, just by engaging our community in this simple way. See, this is why we're starting a church in Owings Mills. This is why you're here at Surge, is you know there's thousands of people outside of these doors this morning that are not connected to Christ. And that's why the church exists. It exists to see them come to know Jesus Christ. And so we can do that together by living out as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And so I want to close our time together. We're going to take communion in a second, but we're also going to just take a minute now and start with just this first step of pray. And so just in the, in the quietness of your own space that you're in right now, is there's probably somebody coming to mind that you interact with on a regular basis or that you know that isn't connected to Christ. And I want us to just start with the first step of praying for that person um, that come, is coming to mind to ask God that God would work in their heart and then also to ask God, how can I be second to them? How can I be second to this person and lay down the agenda of whatever's in my life and make sure I'm living for the agenda that God has for me? So let's just go ahead and close that way by quietly praying and then we'll take communion together.